Well, thank you so much, Michael. Uh, as he passes those out, I'll just introduce myself. My name is Josh. Um, I come from the land of Kitsap, way that way. Um, I'm the worship director at Thrive Kitsap. Um, so that's normally what I'm doing is I'm playing music instead of speaking. So this is always a, a fun, cool opportunity. Um, I love Thrive. I'm really glad that Thrive exists. I've been a part of Thrive for like nine years now. I started going when I was 19. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, you can do some math, figure out how old I am. Um, but uh, anyway, the reason I'm here tonight is because I got this new sweater and I really wanted to show it off. I think it's really snazzy and I hope you guys like my sweater. But no, the real reason why I'm here is because I love the passage we're going to read tonight. We're going to be getting into Mark 11, 11 through 25, which is Jesus cursing a fig tree and clearing out the temple. Uh, it's a really cool passage. It can be confusing, but I think when you look at it, there's a lot there. Uh, so before I start, I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for this opportunity to be here tonight. I pray that you would speak through me, that you would use me, and that if there's anything that I have plans to say that you don't want said, you would remove it from my mouth. If there's anything that I don't have planned that you want me to say, Lord, I pray that you would give me those words. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be present and that you would just be teaching us about your word and who you are tonight. We thank you for your goodness and your faithfulness. Amen. Amen. Have you guys ever seen a glass of clear liquid and thought it was water and, you know, maybe you mistook somebody else's glass for your own or you're a thief um, or you're just really, really thirsty. So you're just like whatever you can find. You're just grabbing it. But anyways, it looks like water. You think it's water and you take a drink and suddenly find that it is not water. <laughs> There's this normal sensation and taste that you're expecting and then you get something else. Very few things can take you from zero to like adrenaline <laughs> that quickly. You know, there's just this like special kind of surprise and disgust that when you take a big gulp of something and it just doesn't feel right, whether it's like carbonation or it's sweet or there's like a flavor you weren't expecting or it burns because it's straight vodka. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, you were expecting one thing. You're expecting this smooth, refreshing drink of water, but instead you feel just like, I don't know, a little bit wrong. <laughs> you have to stop everything that you're doing and just send all of your brain's resources to figuring out what the heck you just put in your mouth. And depending on what it was, either like take yourself through the process of calming down, swallow it, be like, okay, this is okay. This was just Sprite or LaCroix or something, or calling poison control. Um, <laughs> so true story. I had a roommate once who used to gargle mouthwash, um, and the mouthwash of choice for him was hydrogen peroxide. I know some people do this, it's a thing, it has like bleaching properties, so it whitens your teeth, it kills germs and stuff, ain't nothing living in your mouth after that. Um, but anyway, one day he forgot that he had left his peroxide out on the counter in a little jar, uh, and he was thirsty and thinking that it was water. He downed it, and 
Where this story starts from my perspective is I was sitting in the living room on the couch, minding my own business, probably listening to music or something, and he just like bursts through the hallway like Kramer in an episode of Seinfeld, and he's like, dude, I just, I just drank hydrogen peroxide. What do I do? You were, you were like an EMT, right? And true story, I was an EMT for like a month. You can ask me about that later. Um, and so I go, uh, yeah, but that was like four years ago, and I was an EMT for like a month, man. I, I don't really remember. Uh, it's probably either you make yourself throw up or eat some charcoal or, you know, you should probably just call poison control. They, they told me to call poison control if you weren't sure. Um, and they'll, they'll tell you what to do. So he called poison control. And turns out, you can drink a little bit of hydrogen peroxide and be okay. Um, he, I think he had a little bit of a stomach ache, um, but uh, you know, he, he was fine. He didn't vomit blood or anything. Um, so, so anyways, I think my friend has all of you guys beat in terms of who has drank the worst thing, thinking it was water. At least I hope he does. And so now that you are all sufficiently scarred and terrified to drink, a clear liquid. Let's get into this passage. Now, as we read this, I want you guys to think about that story or think about that feeling that expecting one thing and getting another. Keep that in mind as we read this verse. This is uh, Mark 11, 11 through 25. Give me one second to open up my Bible. It says, and he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. This is a surprising passage. I don't know about you, but this does not sound like the Jesus that I grew up learning about in Sunday school. Like, there was no, like, storybook Bible for kids that had this story in it or, like, a little flannel graph that my Sunday school teacher, like, had pictures and stuff of. This is, this is a weird Jesus. Like, 
it's hard to understand, too, what's happening. Like, and what it seems like is, like, was Jesus so hangry that he used his divine power to curse a tree and then go on to throw a temper tantrum in the temple? I remember being a teenager, like the first time that I read this passage, and just being so flabbergasted. So, so much different than what I had learned about Jesus. And because of that surprise, I remember this was actually one of the first passages I really decided to study and dig into to figure out what, what it was trying to say. I actually um, went to my youth pastor and, and asked him about it and asked him if he could meet up and teach me about it. And he was flabbergasted because one of the kids in his youth group actually wanted to learn about the Bible and not milk him for free Starbucks. Um, <laughs> But what I found, learning about this passage and digging into it, is that Jesus' actions are more than just impulsive or cranky or tired. They are well thought out and purposeful, and that, what, and that he was doing something beautiful to teach us about who he is, how he operates, and what he's looking for in his people. As we break into this passage, we're going to do three things. First, we're going to try to understand the passage— and we're going to kind of figure out what Jesus wanted his followers to learn, what Mark, the author, was trying to communicate. And then from that, we will see that the standard is high, that God has a standard for his people. He expects us to have something to show for ourselves when we are his people, and that there are consequences for not meeting it. And finally, we will talk about how we can possibly meet this standard. So let's dig in. The first thing we read is that Jesus came to Jerusalem and went to the temple, but it was getting late, so they decided to go back to the place they were staying, which was called Bethany. And then the next part is kind of where it gets interesting. And what happens here, the, the cursing of the fig tree and the clearing out of the temple, they seem like kind of like two random unrelated stories, like they just kind of happen one right after the other. But Mark, the author, is doing something really cool here. Mark likes to use this literary device. It's called an intercalation. And that's your vocabulary word for today, intercalation. Uh, which is basically, it's a fancy way of saying he would sandwich one story in between another in order to make a statement about the thing in the middle. You see, the story is broken up into three parts. You have Jesus arriving at the fig tree, being disappointed, cursing it. Then Jesus clearing the money changers out of the temple. And then on the way back, you have the fig tree again, where the disciples saw that it had withered, the pattern is fig tree, temple, fig tree. The fig tree is your bread, and the temple is all the fixins. It's your turkey, ham, your lettuce, tomato, mayonnaise, avocado, if it's a really good sandwich. Um, but what he's trying to say here is that he's making a statement about the temple and using the fig tree as an example. He's saying pay attention because these two things are related. So let's look at this story again with that in mind. How is the temple like the fig tree? Well, first let's look at what happens with the fig tree. It says that Jesus saw the fig tree from far off and he was hungry. So he went to it to see if he could find something to eat. And when he got there, he was disappointed because there was nothing to sate his hunger. It says he found nothing but leaves. And as a result of this, he curses it and says, may no one ever eat from you again. There's an expectation and a hope, but upon closer inspection, Jesus finds disappointment. Like picking up a glass of something clear, taking a gulp, only to find that it wasn't water. I think the same thing happens when he gets to the temple. 
In verse 11, the first verse that we read, it says that Jesus got to the temple, looked around, and then went back to the place he was staying because it was late. I'll bet you he was thinking about what he saw during the trip there and back. It was about, I think, about a mile to two miles journey between Jerusalem and Bethany. And I bet when he saw the fig tree, he saw it as an opportunity to communicate how he felt. To say, like, this, this is a picture of what's going on here. And if the fig tree didn't tell you how Jesus felt about what he saw, his actions did. Verses 15 through 17 say, And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, and he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the, temples of the, the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And when evening came, they went out of the city. So Jesus kicks these people out of the temple. In fact, in John's gospel, it says that he made a whip and used that to get everyone out, along with all the sheep and the cattle. And then he has some strong words for the people that he kicked out. He says, quoting Isaiah 56, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? And he's saying this is what the temple was supposed to be. This is the prophet Isaiah speaking, speaking God's words, saying this is, this is what my house should be. But he then says, but you have made it a den of robbers. What is a fig tree good for? It's fruit, yeah. It's something to feed you when you're hungry. It's there to provide nourishment. And if it doesn't, that means there's something wrong. Jesus feels the same way about the temple. This was supposed to be a place where people come to be with God, to receive spiritual nourishment. But he found a bunch of people trying to make a quick buck, taking advantage of those who traveled from all over to get there. You see, God's plan for Israel and the temple was that they would be a chosen people who would model godliness and righteousness and show the world around them how to follow God. There's this beautiful picture in Ezekiel where he has a vision of water flowing out of the temple and it's gushing all over. And everything it touches springs to life and it eventually goes out into the entire world. This was to be a place where people would have their thirst quenched, where they would be spiritually fed and found life. But all Jesus found were leaves, not fruit. A busyness that gives the appearance of life from a distance but nothing that actually delivers. It's not incredibly evident in the passage, but there's a lot of well-documented um, scholarly research you can do to show that like, the type of business that was happening in the temple was not very honest or fair. The money changers were not being totally honest about their exchange rates. The, um, there was kind of this racket going along for the people selling animals where they were... Um, kind of using this process to drive up the price for it um, and just taking advantage of people. And that's why he kicked them out. Um, back to the passage. Uh, what we find here is that if you keep reading, there's even more similarity between the fig tree and the temple. It says the chief priests and the scribes, that is the people in charge of the temple, didn't like what Jesus did and they looked for a way to get rid of him. If we fast forward uh, past the disciples discovering the withered tree and asking Jesus about it, 
we see that what happens next in Mark is that when Jesus comes back to the temple, the scribes and the priests start challenging him and trying to attack his authority. But Jesus hits them back with his, with his parable in chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. He says, A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, some they killed. He had, excuse me, he had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him, and they threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and that this was the, this was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Thanks. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against, against them. So they left him and went away. There is a lot going on in what Jesus is saying here. He's predicting his own death and showing cryptically how he's going to fulfill prophecy. But there's one main thing that I want to hone in on. Jesus cursed the fig tree when it didn't give him any fruit. And the disciples came and found it withered to the root. Jesus is using that as a picture for what is going to happen to the temple. Jesus uses the parable to tell the scribes and the priests that God has sent messenger after messenger, that is, the prophets, and finally his son, to try and get them to understand and change their ways, but they won't. So the only thing left is to dig it up so you can use the soil to plant something new, or to use the language Jesus does in the parable. You will destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. If you take a drink of water, or rather a drink of clear liquid, and find that it's not water, you would likely spit it out. What we see here is that the standard is high. God expects his people to be righteous and will not stand for his name to be made less because of the actions of those that represent him. The priests and the scribes did not meet the standard. They screwed it up over and over again, despite how many chances they had to get it right, despite how many people God sent to try to get them, turn back to God, change your ways, do this right. So they lost their place. The temple was done away with, and Israel is no longer the only ones to be called God's people. And the temple is no longer the primary place to worship God. Jesus did away with the temple because it apparently didn't work. He tore it all down and made a new covenant with the whole world that says whoever would come to him, whoever would believe in him and follow him can now be called his people. No longer will there be sacrifices in the temple to forgive sins, but there will be one sacrifice for all people that now there is infinite forgiveness. No longer will outsiders come to worship through the people of God, but they can be called his people too. Praise God. 
That means we all get to be called God's people. Amen. God is good. Amen. Amen. God is good and just to graft us into his family and make us his people. But one thing we have to remember is that God doesn't change. God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. If he had high standards for his people when it was just Israel, I think he still has high standards for his people when it's all nations. In fact, Jesus says that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Not only that, James chapter 2 says, You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? We absolutely need to be holy. Now, we aren't under the law the way Israel was anymore. But that doesn't mean we can just do whatever we want. God cares about character. God wants his people to show the world what he is like. So if we are to be called his people, we need to exhibit his character. We are to be holy just as God is holy. Some of you guys are starting to feel the heat. So am I. This is the part where if, if I'm the one in the pews, I'm starting to tug at my collar and think to myself, like, oh, man, is he talking to me right now? And the answer is yes. I'm talking to you right now. Anybody here who calls themselves a Christian, I'm talking to you. And I'm talking to myself, too. I have to say, this was a hard sermon to write because it kept reminding me that my actions mean a lot to God. And my actions haven't always been what God would want them to be. I'm reminded of all the ways I haven't lived up to his standard. Just yesterday, I came home from work, and Grace, my pregnant wife, was working in the yard, pouring her blood, sweat, and tears into making some garden boxes for her and her niece. And one of the first things I said to her when I got home was a criticism of how she was doing it. I was like... Are you, are you just going to leave that, that paintbrush out? It's going to dry. Like, and she's like, I'm getting there, okay? <laughs> and so I fall short. I am a bad husband sometimes. <sighs> Do you guys feel like that too? Like you fall short? Like you haven't lived up to the standard? Like you've screwed it up too much? And you're just asking yourself, how can I do this? I think we're all wondering, how can we live up to this impossible standard? I know I feel that way. I feel that way a lot. But I'm here to tell you to take heart. Because yes, the standard is impossible. We can't meet it. But we serve a God who does impossible things. The biggest and best of those things is that Jesus lived the perfect life for you. And he imparts his righteousness onto you when you become saved. So you don't have to worry about all those mistakes you made. All those sins in your past. God has forgiven you. I loved what Hannah started the worship time with, that verse, that he has removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. That is, there is an infinite distance between you and your sins. They are gone. And instead of looming over you, and waiting for you to make another mistake so he can send you to hell. No, he says, follow me. 
He says, my burden is light and my yoke is easy. Those are comforting words. My burden is light and my yoke is easy. There's a book that I love that has kind of been making the rounds. Um, Some of you might have read it. It's called Gentle and Lowly. Um, And it does a really good job of fleshing out what that means. One thing in particular that really stuck with me that the author writes is that one of the ways you could translate what Jesus said there is that his yoke is kind. Not just easy, but kind. It calls to mind this imagery of a farmer kind of walking beside his oxen. I mean, that's what a yoke is. A yoke goes on your ox, and they use it to plow a field. And he's gently leading them, speaking softly, making sure their needs are met. It's Jesus saying, we're going to work. We're going to plow this field, but I will be with you every step of the way. You just need to trust me, walk beside me, and do what I do. You see, God's expectation for us now to meet that standard is not that we would live a perfect life. We can't do it. But instead, that we would look to Jesus, who already lived a perfect life, and follow in his footsteps. Another author I look up to a lot, John Mark Comer, puts it this way in many of his sermons, that the goal of the Christian life is to be an apprentice of the way of Jesus. I love that word. I think that word, apprentice, captures well the the posture and the heart we should have. It's easy to hear all that, to hear that statement and everything else I've said, and get all fired up, thinking that we need to, oh, I need to do more stuff. I need, to, I need to be holy and be a better Jesus follower. I need to serve more at church and youth group and go to more Bible studies and pray harder. And I certainly commend those things. Those are good things. You should do those things. But I also want to tell you, maybe slow down. And I want you to know that those things won't get you anywhere if you don't have a heart that is toward Jesus. The people in the temple were doing lots. In fact, the scribes and the priests that Jesus is talking about and says such harsh things to were basically professional holy people. I'm sure a lot of them thought they were doing the right thing, that by making more money for the temple, they could make the temple better and please God by improving his house. They were famous for knowing the Torah, the books of the law, inside and out. These were the people carrying out the sacrifices for God. They were the ones leading people in worship. They were doing all the things. But Jesus saw their hearts, their self-righteousness, and how they had turned serving God into a way to serve themselves. And that will happen with all of us so easily, with all of our doing if we aren't careful. There are two passages I think we should look at in order to understand what Jesus wants from us. The first is Luke 10, 38 through 42, which is the story of Martha and Mary. It says, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, Do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Hmm. 
Martha was quite literally serving Jesus. But Jesus said that actually her sister is the one who had the right idea. That it's better actually to sit at the feet of Jesus and listen. The other passage I want to look at is John 15, 1 through 4, which says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. That's kind of familiar, isn't it? And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. If we want to be a fig tree that Jesus comes across and is pleased with, one that has something to offer others, not just green leaves giving the appearance of life, then this is what we need. Connection with God. Jesus says that unless you abide in the vine, you can't bear fruit. Our good deeds are garbage if we do them on our own. We humans have such limited sight. We're so prone to mistakes, being misguided. Only God can give us the direction we need in our good deeds. God's call to holiness in scripture is to be holy because he is holy or to be holy just as he is holy. In other words, we're supposed to try to be like him. If you're going to imitate someone, What's the most essential thing? That you know what they're like, right? The worst impressions of people are done by people that don't know the person they're doing an impression of. (laughs) And so, if you gotta know somebody, how do you get to know someone? Like really, truly understand them. You spend time with them. Not just once a week for an hour, but you look for opportunities to be with them during all seasons of your life, good and bad, and everything in between. You ask them questions. You listen intently. You don't just spend the whole time talking, but you listen. You be with them. You have quality time. (laughs) I think this is why It's so important to abide in the vine and why it's better to sit at Jesus' feet. Because knowing God is how we can be like him. And being like God is what holiness is all about. There's one last chunk of the passage we read in the beginning that I haven't really talked about yet. It's that final part where the disciples see the fig tree and Jesus answers them. Let's read that and then I'll wrap up. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. Now this section can kind of just stand on its own. Jesus takes a second to teach his disciples about having faith when they pray. But I think it's helpful to have this be the last thing we look at, kind of the the part we end on. Partially because Jesus teaches us a little bit about who God is, 
by how we pray and how to imitate him. He says that you need to forgive if God is going to answer your prayers. Um, But just as important as that, we need to have faith in God. We need to believe that he can answer our prayers and that abiding in him is going to be worthwhile and actually seek him with our whole hearts because otherwise we won't do it. If we don't first believe, we won't get anywhere. Everything we do comes down to what we believe. Our actions flow from what we believe about ourselves, what we think about the world, and how we think things are going to turn out for us. We do what we believe will make us happy, typically. That's generally how people work. And when we sin, it usually comes down to not believing God, that his way is the best way for us. So I simply want to end by assuring you that it is worthwhile to abide in God. Time spent with him is not wasted. And you will only believe he is good and that his way is best when you experience his goodness. And when that happens, you will have a hunger for good deeds that will satiate the world around you, like a refreshing drink of water or a fig tree bursting with life, just as God intended for his people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that when you walk into our temples, which is our hearts, that you would like what you see. I pray that we would be vines that bear fruit, that you would give us love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, and that that would nourish the people we come across in our daily lives. God, I pray that you would make us holy as you are holy and that they would see you through us. Amen.